This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. And by full-spectrum spirituality, I really try to explore the what we might call the shadow aspects of the path with the light aspects with the of the path, and how we can conceive of and implement a kind of an approach to practice that honors both halves, the shadow and the light, and integrates them into greater um, greater stages and developments of, of unity. And um, in this episode, I share with you a talk I gave, which I'm calling Enlightening Shadows. And the, the idea here is I'm giving a, a kind of dharmic reflection on a very famous philosophical dialogue uh, attributed to Plato, or written by Plato, and it's a it's a Socratic dialogue in his book The Republic, and the dialogue is called the Allegory of the Cave, and I share it today because I think there are aspects of the spiritual path at times that, when we have deep insight, when we have moments of expansion or kind of mini or big awakenings, big shifts in our sense of self. Um, Etc. When there's big changes in our in our just vision of ourselves or understanding of ourselves, that those changes and I would say spiritual developments can be at times very disorienting, very destabilizing, even very um, confusing. And there's something about Plato's analogy or allegory of the cave, which I think speaks to that disorientation very nicely. Um, Another. In my own life, I've gone through several of these these cycles, um, and it just I think it's important to normalize them and to have a sense of maybe a broader map of how these these disorient this, these disorienting experiences can be um, recognized and then compassionately worked with. So um, that's the essence of today's talk, and I just want to say that if you're listening and you're new, I hope you enjoy the talk. If you've been around for a while, I'm going to make a gentle, um, maybe plea to encourage you to consider supporting the show. And you can do that in a variety of ways. One is just to share an episode or pass it along to somebody or write a review in your favorite podcast app. All of those all of those um, gestures are extremely helpful to the, the work we're doing here in the podcast. Um, if you'd like to get more involved, uh, one easy way to do that, if you're interested in the practices that Terry and I teach, which are yin yoga, um, qigong, and yin meditation, a style of meditation that I've been developing over several years now that it kind of weaves together elements of Buddhist practice and Taoist philosophy, um, and works well with Indian yoga. Uh, so we, we sort of see these three practices as uh, one practice with many forms, in that we are using the body, the energy, and the mind to awaken the heart's uh, deep wisdom and compassion. So if that's of interest to you, if you'd like to join us online, we have a, a community of like-minded practitioners. We offer four classes a week. You can attend live over Zoom, or if you just want to practice along at your own pace, we uh, keep all of our classes, all of our workshops, all of our tutorials in a library that you'll have access to as a member. 
and um, and that's sort of meant to be a, a, a deep bank of practice support for folks. And, and, and so far it's been going really well, and we offer a variety of sliding scale uh, memberships. So if you're interested, check out joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, or check out the link in the show notes, and we look forward to practicing with you. Lastly, a few weeks back, I had a, a, a really great conversation with my friend Alex Dorr, and Alex is a mycologist. He's the CEO of Mushroom Revival, a functional mushroom company that produce and distribute uh, functional mushrooms in the form of reishi, cordyceps, lion's mane, and, and he offers a, a few basic formulas that, that incorporate these functional uh, mushrooms. So if you don't know anything about functional mushrooms, go check out that talk. But these are great supplements for... Um, helping our bodies adapt to stress and handle stress. And they've been used in Chinese medicine for thousands of years. And um, I, Terry and I both find ourselves um, better off when we when we take them regularly. So if, if uh, that's of interest, we are now affiliates with Alex's company, Mushroom Revival. There's links in the show notes that take you to their, their website. And any purchase there gives us a small percentage of proceeds. So uh, thank you for that. And uh, lastly, if you are supporting the show, thank you, thank you. We rely on uh, supporters' generosity, and we really appreciate it, and we bow with deep gratitude. Okay, without further ado, today's episode, Enlightening Shadows. So one of the themes uh, that I've been really sort of slowly trying to unfold is, is a theme that's, I think, at the heart of the Buddha Dharma. Um, and I think it even, in some ways, is what gives the Buddha Dharma a slightly different flavor or feel than some of the other forms of, spiritu- forms of spirituality that, that, that are, arose in the, in the Indian subcontinent. And, and that theme is conditionality, that um, really at the heart of the Buddha's insight that he feels brought him to a, a, a new level of awakening, a new level of understanding, a new level of compassion, was the understanding that um, nothing in the world possesses intrinsic essence, that everything arises due to causes and conditions. And particularly, our sense of self lacks essential essence, lacks essential nature, that our, that our sense of self is a conditioned uh, process or a, a conditioned dynamic. And one of the ways I try to speak around this idea of conditioning is through the, my own personal experience of kind of realizing some of the broader dynamics in my family of origin. Um, that I think led to me led me to having a, a kind of a fragilized sense of self, which I spoke to through the lens of narcissism, um, speaking about how there's a, a very fragile sense of self when the child is always trying to live up to the parental expectation and, and, and getting rewarded for performance and um, kind of ignored when things aren't being performed quite well. Um, and I got a lot of response to that particular talk. The talk was titled Seeing and Freeing Patterns. And I think it, it probably has elicited more 
Sangha response than any other talk I've given, which I think, thought was interesting. Um, but one of the things that was a common denominator in many of the emails that I received and, and comments about that talk was, I think I see myself in this too. My God, I'm a narcissist. Oh my God, I had no idea. <laughs> and um, and I just want to I want to soften that you know that uh, maybe self characterization or that characterization of yourself if you felt resonance with some of those themes um i would say narcissism is is sort of the the far end of the spectrum of these traits of our of our being that that really have evolved for for thousands and thousands and thousands of years the impulse to um, display value to be socially accepted, to fear social approbation or, or you know, disapproval, um, the, to the fear of being you know an outcast of some sort. These are very deeply wired, um, kind of emotional, psychological concerns that humans have, that all primates have. So um, if you felt like, oh, you know, I'm, I do try to perform and I'm afraid of like getting bad feedback, you know, am I a narcissist? No, you're normal <laughs> for one. You're, that's, I think that's the way we get conditioned as, um, as humans. Um, but the broader theme that I've been sensing in many of these responses that I've received is that, and this was similar to the question that I shared last week around the woman who shared that she realized that her parenting style was just a kind of a an updated software edition of her parents uh, parenting style and she was concerned about what that uh, effect of that conditioning on her children and i think there's a that there's a broader question there a broader theme around when we wake up to the fact that we're conditioned it's like waking up to the fact that we're in a matrix it can be very disorienting it can be very very disorienting and 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 I want to speak to that kind of the confusion that can arise, um, the sense of disorientation that can come up. And in a sense, my main intention is to normalize it uh, so that you do, if it if you feel if you're feeling any of that, you don't uh, necessarily interpret it that something is there's something implicitly wrong with the, the, the direction of your practice or the, the energy of your practice, but that, that this disorientation in some sense is a sign of uh, growth and expansion of your understanding of yourself and your relationship to the world. And to try to speak to that theme, um, I, I want to sidestep for a moment and share with you a little bit about um, a project that I'm involved with, with Terry's son that lives with us, his name is Blaine, and his friend Gus. <clears throat> and they are both seniors at the local high school here in Freeport. And as seniors, they had the option to do a senior project for the last month of school, rather than going to classes, they could kind of design a, a special project of some sort that would qualify as academic credit. And before I share with you their project, um, over the last year, whenever I've spoken with them, one, a, a theme that keeps coming up is the, the kind of altered state of consciousness that they both have encountered in their own unique ways. And um, for Terry son Blaine, um, that altered state of consciousness occurs for him 
not when he's at a party or anything like that, <laughs> but when he's pitching, when he's a baseball pitcher. So when he's, when he's, when he's playing baseball, um, he, in his own way, speaks about his experience of a flow state where, um, you know, time slows down. He's not really aware of the crowd. He's not really aware of anything other than being really um, in the zone and feeling an effortless participation within the game that, that goes very nicely for him because he's a talented pitcher. Um, and, and how much a sense of self for him falls away there. He's just not conscious of having to do anything. He's not, you know, um, getting into negative feedback loops with his own mind and, 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 and second guessing himself. He's just in the zone, which I'm sure you, all of you can sort of have a sense or reckon, recognize what that might be like. And his friend Gus um, has been kind of a, a woodsy hunter for most of his life. And he spends a lot of time in the woods. And in talking to him about that, he describes his mind getting very quiet and this merger that he feels with nature there. And um, I recognize having read about this, but I've, I recognize sort of the telltale signs of nature mysticism, where there's a oneness that that, that forms that that are that is revealed between your mind and the and the world that you're in. So, given that they were both very excited about these things um, as a non-parental adult in their life, <laughs> I suggested, "Hey, why don't you guys do a senior project?" that uh, looks at how ancient cultures used certain technologies to shift consciousness into the state you're describing, but how they use certain technologies to bring about that shift in consciousness in a more uh, ongoing, reliable way. Specifically, I suggested you could use Qigong and yoga, breath work and meditation, and um, and maybe even a sweat lodge. You could build a sweat lodge. Turns out that's what their project is. <laughs> so they're they're in a four week course now, um, studying with me for the breathwork and meditation, studying the yoga and qigong with Terry, and then they're constructing in our backyard a, a sweat lodge. And um, and part of the impetus for it was really born out of my conversations with Bob Wright and 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 how in his analysis. Um, we as a species are in trouble if there isn't some sort of significant revolution in our consciousness. Like looking back, historians will look at this moment. If we survive, it's like there was a revolution in human consciousness, an expansion of moral imagination um, that allowed humans to collaborate and not get into tribalistic warfare that would allow the collaboration and cooperation to tackle the very real, real, existential threats that are that are on the horizon so there's a there's a the stakes are high in a way and that's just that's all context now i just want you to know that that's sort of what's going on in the world here in maine uh, we've got two boys trying to shift their consciousness from the from egoic consciousness to unity consciousness and um every tuesday i meet with them and um we we do our our practice together <clears throat> and last tuesday Actually, it was, I think on Friday, we, we did an extra practice together. And afterwards, they made breakfast and I made a cup of coffee and we were sitting on our porch just talking casually. And I, I reviewed a little bit with them some of the instructions that I gave. So these, these instructions will hopefully sound some, somewhat familiar to you. 
but we were doing a, essentially a breathwork practice. We used the LSD, light, slow, deep breathing to, to calm and, and center the mind. Um, but then I gave the added instruction on this day. I said, whenever you notice your mind thinking, just verbally out loud say thinking so that you acknowledge that you're thinking and then you come back to your, uh, your breath as your perch. And so the three of us were practicing and, you know, every now and then there would be a little chirp, thinking, 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 thinking. And that's a practice um, that I've done and I've shared with you, the noting practice, but it's also a practice, the out loud form. It's kind of a social practice uh, that, that a teacher, Kenneth Folk, had taught me, um, where he, either in working in dyads or larger groups, people just take turns noting whatever's most obvious in their experience. And um, I was trying to get them to, the, to realize that their mind gets swept away by thought unconsciously. Um, and then there's this moment of waking up and realizing that, that, that you've been in, in, a, in, a, in a trance in a way, you've been swept away. Um, and then to recognize what it's like when you're present again. You know, that's sort of some of the, the essential features of a meditative process. But on this particular day, when we were there having the breakfast and I was sitting with them, um, I, I launched into a, 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 and I asked their permission. I said, would it be okay if I gave you a little bit of a teaching right now? And they, they were, they seemed receptive. And I said, okay, so I want you to imagine, now there's plagiarism involved here. I'm not going to take credit for this, but I said, I want you to imagine that from a very early age as a child, that you were brought deep into a cave. And in that, in, in, the, in the very innermost aspect of the cave, you got chained to the ground. And you were chained in such a way that you couldn't turn your head left or right. All you could do was look straight ahead at the wall of the cave that you faced. And then upon that wall of the cave, all you saw were objects or shadows of objects. You just saw shadows, flickers of, of light and color moving along the, um, the, the wall of the cave. And I said, that, that's basically all you've known your entire life. So you would take those shadows to be reality. You take the shadows to be reality. But then suppose you get to your senior year of being in the cave. <laughs> You got high school somehow in the cave, even though you were chained. This is this is an allegory, and I'll explain that more carefully in a moment. But um, don't take this too literally, because um, we don't know how the people in the cave were fed or could bathe or any of that stuff. Um, but they're just facing the wall, looking at shadows. And I said, now imagine at some point someone were to come along from somewhere behind you, unshackle the chains to your body and assist you to stand up. And then as you stand up, they turn you around and suddenly you see that there's a big, well, you're blinded initially because there's a fire and you don't even know what fire is, but there's this, there's this bright light shining at you and you can't see anything around the fire. It's very disorienting. But then after your eyes adapt, you realize, oh, okay, there's this, we'll call it a fire, like a bonfire. And then there's a little bit of a stage in front of the fire upon which puppets are made. Puppets are passing that cast the shadows that you've been looking at all your life. So that would, 
you know, really change the whole, your whole worldview. And you realize, oh, I've been looking at things this way, thinking this was real. And I turned around and now I can see that whole process being constructed. And it's not reality. It's just a, rep, it's a shadow of reality. But then if you're open to it, I said, uh, say the person that freed you from those chains says, let me take you outside. You know, and it'll be, it'll be difficult to get to climb up out of the cave. But then when you get to the mouth of the cave, then the broad, the sun <laughs> that's shining there is really blinding. And it would take a while, just like with this fire, to adapt. So I hope you know that this isn't my story. This is um, one of the most famous um, dialogues in literature and philosophy. It's Plato's allegory of the cave found in his seminal book, The Republic. It's a dialogue between Socrates and Plato's brother, Glaucon. And what I tried to just share with the boys was essentially that egoic consciousness, the sense of self that we tend to ride around with, is essentially defined by thoughts, by conceptualization and thought. And when we're not aware of that, we're, we're like, in a sense, we're, we're, we're like the prisoners chained to the, the floor of the cave looking at shadows. And that when you start to see your thoughts as thoughts, this, I was trying to connect it to the practice. I said, when you start to see your thoughts as thoughts, you start to uh, wake up out of being entranced by the shadows and you come to a more unified less divided, non-separate connection to your experience in the world. And I said, does that make sense? And they both like, yeah, <laughs> it was the most gratifying. Yeah. I've ever heard of. Yeah. That makes total. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So they seem to get it. Um, but after I, 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 I sort of did my pricey shorthand version of the allegory of the cave, I, I thought about it more. I said, said to myself, I'm like, I wonder if I captured that correctly. I wonder if I missed anything in that, my, my, my rendition of the, of the telling of it. Cause it had been about 20 years since I read it when I was in school. Um, <clears throat> so I picked out my copy and there was a few things that I did miss that I want to share with you. Cause the things I missed, I think are, are spiritually relevant to our journey in, in on the path um, and I think we'll hopefully speak to some of the, the, the questions and comments I've received around disorientation, confusion, um, and again, not necessarily give you specific answers for, for what to do in your, in your, your specific situation, but um, maybe give you a, a, a sense of normalization of what you're going through. So, um, where do I want to pick up on here? Socrates essentially says, and so in every way, when the prisoners were just looking at the wall of the cave, in every way, they would believe that the shadows of the objects were mentioned, or we, that we mentioned were the whole truth. The truth was equivalent to the shadows they saw. And his, his, um, his dialogue partner says, yes, that would be true. Inevitably, that would be true. So Socrates then says, this is where the prisoners are now being let out to then think what would naturally happen to them 
if they were released from their bonds and cured of their delusions. Suppose one of them were let loose and suddenly compelled to stand up and turn his head and look and walk towards the fire. All, this is what caught my ear, all these actions would be painful. And he would, he would too, he would be too dazzled to see properly the objects of which he used to see the shadows of. So even though he's looking at the fire and he can see the puppets, he's too dazzled by the light to actually see what's there. What do you think he would say if he was told that what he used to see was so much empty nonsense and that he was now near reality and seeing more correctly? Because he was turned towards objects that were more real. And if on top of that, he, was, he were compelled to say what each of them, the passing objects was when it was pointed out to him. Don't you think he would, would be at a loss and think that what he used to see was far truer than the objects now being pointed out to him? So this is speaking to, he's looking at the real objects from which the shadows are being cast, but because he's so disoriented in turning towards the fire, he would think the shadows were the real expression of reality. And if you were made, Plato, uh, Socrates continues, and if you were made to look directly at the light of the fire, it would hurt his eyes and he would turn back and retreat to the things which he could see properly which he would think really clearer, sorry, let me say that again, which he would think really clearer than the things being shown him. So he would think the shadows were clearer, truer. But then if he were forcibly dragged up the steep and rugged ascent, coming out of the cave now, and not let go till he had been dragged out into the sunlight, the process would be a painful one too, to which he would much object. And when he emerged into the light, his eyes would be so dazzled by the glare that he wouldn't be able to see a single one of the things he was now told were real. But once, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, once the person from the, the, the prisoner that's been released, that's taken out of the cave, comes to sunlight, Plato writes through Socrates, later on, he would come to the conclusion that it is the sun. It is the sun that produces the changing seasons and years and controls everything in the visible world. And is in a sense responsible for everything that he and his fellow prisoners used to see. The sun is responsible for everything in the visible known world. And now I'm going to jump again further down. And this is the, the, the final bit. But what do you think, Socrates asked, what do you think would happen if he went back to sit in his old seat in the cave? Wouldn't his eyes be blinded by the darkness because he had come in suddenly out of the sunlight? Certainly, says his friend. And if he had to discriminate between the shadows in competition with the other prisoners. So imagine you've, you've been out in the sunlight, as I feel like I was out this afternoon enjoying the fresh sunlight today, but you've been out in the sunlight for a while and you wander back, go back into the cave, into the darkness. If he had to discriminate between the shadows on the wall in competition with the other prisoners while he was still blinded 
by the, by the transition, blinded by the transition. And before his eyes got used to the darkness, a process that would take some time, wouldn't he be likely to make a fool of himself? I like that line. Wouldn't he be likely? So the person coming back into to the depth of the cave can't really see well for a period of time, can't distinguish between the, sh- the shadows and the prisoners on the floor. Wouldn't he make a fool of himself? And the prisoners, the prisoners might say that his visit to the upper world had ruined his sight and that the ascent was not worth even attempting. And if anyone tried to release them and lead them up, they would kill him if they could lay hands on him. So that's quite a, an allegory. That's quite a story. And I did a little bit of back reading around, you know, what did, how did, what did, what, what did it mean in, in terms of in context with Plato's philosophy and, 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 and kind of his views around how uh, philosophers uh, needed to really, in a sense, experience reality directly so that they could see how to best govern a state to, 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 because Plato was disgusted with the political infighting and corruption of his time. And he, he felt that there, a, there needed to be a philosophy statesperson to, to rise that would um, have a deeper connection with reality. But that context aside, I listened to that story with my, what I would call my Buddhist ears. And on one level, <clears throat> I think this, I have a three-part interpretation of this allegory. And this is a little bit sim- simplistic, but I offer it for reflection to maybe perhaps give a map for parts of what your experience and practice might be like. And there's sort of three phases here, just like in the allegory. There's the phase where we are just transfixed by our thinking. It, we're, we're not even aware that we're thinking, we're just swept away by it. We all know what that is like. And, we, and when we practice, we're very aware of what that's like because we're just sitting there trying to observe things and we keep having these experiences of waking up, having been lost with no intention to get lost, no intention to start thinking, we're just gone. So the, the, the aspect of the allegory that I think speaks to this being lost in thought is, of course, the, the, the experience of looking at shadows. And that happens, that happens in our practice a lot. But as we just sit, and hold the gentle intention to observe there's a way that we we wake up within the 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 transfiction of the shadows or we, we wake up within the the trance of being enmeshed in following the shadows and we become awake to our senses we, we in a sense we become awake to the process more we become awake to how sensations arise how sensations lead to feelings in the body or create or shift and create conditioned feelings in the body, how those feelings condition thoughts in our mind, how thoughts in our mind condition sensations in our body. We become awake to the dynamic. And I think in a way, I haven't tried to map this out too closely, but I think to me that speaks to when the, the prisoner turns from their, is able to turn finally and look back behind them and they see the construction of the display of shadow that they were transfixed by. 
they see that there was a fire. They see that there was a kind of a, like a, a stage of sorts by which humans would hunker down underneath so that they could hold up puppets so that the fire would cast the shadows of the puppets against the, against the, the cave wall. But they see the whole process. And I think that speaks to, you know, when we are awake, like when we, when you know that you're there, when you know that you're sitting, when you know that you're aware of a sound, you know that you're aware of sensation, you know that you're aware of thought or feeling, you're conscious of the events that are occurring. So you're, you're awake to the dynamic. But in a certain sense, you're still sort of stuck in the middle of the, of the cave. <laughs> and then um, with further practice, and we don't, the practice doesn't drag us out like this poor prisoner was dragged out against, maybe against their will in the story. But with gentle practice, we, we more and more come to rest and appreciate. And, and this is something that you, is not so much technique driven as it is, I think it unfolds when there's just a, a sincere appreciation of it, a sincere an, an ability to recognize it. And then a way to, it's, it's hard to speak to, but a, a way of, I would say, sincerely surrendering into the experience of resting within your source or resting within your consciousness. And so coming out to the sunlight is a little bit, I think, in, in this allegory, analogous to awareness becoming awake to itself. So, and that's different from being awake to the senses in the middle of the cave when you're, you know, you're aware of the process of your experience. You're aware of the sensations that are occurring, sounds, et cetera. Um, that's sort of one level of mindfulness in a way, to be aware of things, to be aware of objects, to be aware of what you're experiencing or being aware of the content of your experience. But the final freedom is recognizing the source that allows everything to be and everything to be known. And that's an awareness itself. So the, the sun, I think, is analogous in this, in this allegory for awake awareness. When awareness is awake to itself. And... That in itself, you know, I, I've told this story before, and I, so I'm hesitant to share it again, just because it's I don't want to overdo my personal anecdotes. But um, when when awareness wakes up to itself, and its only reference point is the fact that it's awake, the normal conditions that we are we know ourselves by aren't there for for periods of time, and I think. So one of you last week used the phrase glimpses that our practice initially, I think very much progresses with glimpses of that nature of awareness. And then, you know, we get a glimpse of it, but then there's a gravitational pull back into, you know, whether you want to call it the cave or gravitational pull back into more egoic, uh, uh, an egoic identification driven by identity with thinking. But when awake awareness wakes up to itself, and, and there can be thinking going on, 
But sometimes there's just a profound quietude. There's a sense of the silence that's listening to all experience. And even though I, you know, as I'm describing your thing, everyone's thinking, wow, you know, I might want, that sounds good. The silence that's listening to it all, the wake awareness, the, the freedom, it's calm. It can sound really good, but it can also be disorienting for oneself when that is realized. And, and so, you know, the way I try to describe this uh, more tangibly is our normal sense of self, the egoic self, is known through its rub and experience with thinking primarily. You know, sensations of the body, sure, but the, 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 the real roots of who we think we are are in our thoughts. And in the absence of rubbing against thought for self-identity, we can feel both very um, open, but also very naked that we're naked and vulnerable to imme the immediacy of the world. There's no buffer anymore. And the, the, the hopefully humorous anecdote around this comes from, again, when I was practicing in Burma uh, many years ago, and one of the features on that retreat was that we were, men and women, were encouraged to wear traditional uh, lunji, which is like a, a big hoop skirt. And I loved it because it, as kind of a minimalist, it was just, I just needed two lungies and that was basically my wardrobe with a few t-shirts. Um, but uh, tying the lungie was a bit of an art that took a, use, took a little bit getting used to. And um, I noticed myself when I was doing walking meditation in the Dharma hall, that I would get anxious about whether the knot on my lungie was tied tightly enough that it would stay, stay put. And there were, this is the part you probably heard before. Uh, there were a few moments, I remember these very distinctly, where particularly at the point of the walking path when I stopped to turn around and go back the other way. But in the stopping, for a moment or two, my legs, the skin of my legs was not in contact with the cloth of the skirt. Now, to anyone that's accustomed to wearing skirts, this may not sound like any kind of like shocking thing to you, but to me, having not worn skirts that much in my life, when my legs weren't in contact with the fabric, I was seized by a panic that I'd somehow lost my lungi, that the, the knot had loosened and that I was just standing there, you know, in the middle of the Dharma hall with, with no, no, noble monks and nuns around me that I was just sort of half dressed and, and looking like a confused foreigner. Um, but I say that because so if you can feel, imagine what that was like, just like the, the, the shock of like, you know, where's my, am I dressed properly? I think our, our consciousness goes through a similar convulsion at times when we might really start to open up and start to even stabilize in, in a sense of open awareness and a, and a sense of presence that, that's not defined by anything other than it's awake. You can taste that. But then, and this is the way I experience it. So this, again, just this is my kind of my um, my characterization from my own practice, and just it doesn't necessarily mean this will be your experience. But but my experience of it is when there is that delicious opening into stillness of awareness itself, I see my mind 
my egoic mind, the Josh that wants to do it right, that wants to plot things out, wants to manage and control his life, that that kind of seizes back into place. It springs back in and there's a kind of a, a recoil or a contracture back around that whole process. So what I'm really trying to get at here is that the journey itself, and I would say a meditation, which we're about to we'll have shortly, a meditation itself is likely going to include all three of these aspects, being lost in thought for periods of time, being awake to the fact that you were lost in thought. Now you're aware of the sensory experience that you're aware of the content of your experience. And then glimpses of what it's like when awareness is just resting within itself, identified only with the fact that it's aware. And those three, I'm trying to use my hands to show this, but they, they will be folded. They'll be folding into each other constantly, I think, or regularly. And slowly through familiarity, particularly with being awake to the senses and being awake to um, awareness itself, there's a way that the tendency of being conditioned by thought itself starts to lose its power that we start to realize that in the silence, there's a, there's a directness of reality or a directness of truth that can't be expressed in language. That can't be contained by, a, by, by language or thought or conceptualization that implicitly feels true. And what allows the, I think the process to go smoothly or to to just uh, maybe another word for it is what allows the process to unfold organically is your own compassion that grows because again the compassion means it's sort of the energy that seeks to relieve suffering and so when we really start to feel the pain of being attached to a thought or the pain of being identified by a thought or defined by a thought, or we feel the pain of um, always trying to get our sense experience to conform to what we want it to conform to, we start to look for a different exit. But the exit, the and the ironic thing here is the exit is not into any other experience, what the Zen folks call, they they refer to it as the gateless gate. When we stop looking for a gate to get out of where we are, when we stop looking for an exit, the gateless gate of your own awake awareness starts to open. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that talk today. I hope it, as always, I hope the reflections I give um, kind of open up some avenues of reflection and exploration and and um, even evolution in your own practice. Um, and you know, I, I the one principle I often say in some of my talks is, and this is sort of the general idea of the Dharma, which is uh, when you listen 
Take what's useful, take anything that feels valuable or useful or insightful and make it your own. And if there's things that you disagree with or find problematic or, or just don't understand, if something's not so useful right now, just leave it aside. It may come back later in several years time or maybe a few months. It may come back to you and, and you might see the same reflection in a different form and it might really speak to you in a different way at a different stage in your practice. But just take what's useful, leave aside what's not so useful. And um, other than that, I just want to say thank you for your practice. Thank you for att your attention. Um, I'll be giving next week's talk on really trying to answer the question of around the, another reflection on the relationship between our contemplative practice of studying ourselves and that relationship to societal transformation. So stay tuned for that. Take good care of yourself. Keep practicing. Stay strong. Keep healthy. I wish you peace. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.